Father, your word is true, and if we do not believe your word, we are in a, in a sad place, Lord. And I just pray that this morning your word would go forth and speak to each and every one of us, just as you have reminded me this week as I've thought about this sermon, Lord, of how wicked I was, how hopeless I am without you. And I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak through me, that it would be your words and not mine that are brought to the heart of your people. Lord, help us to be encouraged to follow hard after you. And not only that, Lord, but that if we are not born again, that you would open our eyes and expose um, our sinfulness to us. We just pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last few weeks, we've touched on, and Paul has been teaching us that our righteousness is not of works. Our righteousness, our justification comes from God. And the first thing that Paul sets out to do is he, set, he tells us that none are righteous before God, whether that's Gentiles or even the Jews. So he's... He split those two groups apart and said, okay, the Gentiles, this is what their life is like. They are in sin. There's no hope in what they do. They love wickedness. And then on the other side, you have the Jews that they have the law, they have God's words, and yet still they sin and they're guilty before God. And that is a key. Both Gentiles and Jews are guilty before God, just as we are. And so we have to be careful to realize that our guilt before God is not um, is the problem. So when we get to Romans chapter three, verse nine, it says, so he's just proven that the Jews, though they had the words of God, they did not believe. And so their unbelief brought God's wrath. So God's words don't aren't just his promises. They're every word that God has. So when he gets to verse 8, if I'll I'll read that again, it says why not say as we are slanderously reported it as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. The word here condemnation is and just here is not just the idea of it was right. It is God condemning them. God is not only acting as the judge, God is acting as the accuser. Right? So, in this case, the condemnation is just. So, verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? So, who's we? Who's Paul talking about? Himself and the Jews. Better than who? The Greeks or the Gentiles. So he's saying, are we better than they? And what is his reply? Not at all. This is emphatic. This is, he is trying to give emphasis that it would never happen. That we, and he proves this by saying, therefore we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. This is Paul's point. Charged. This means that, you know, a lot of times in our court system, 
when you're charged with a crime, you're not guilty yet, right? So they may pick up somebody on the street. He, he matches the description of the criminal who broke into this bank or whatever it may be. Oh, yeah, we saw this guy in a, a hoodie, a black hoodie with uh, baggy pants. That's typical. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he broke in. We think he broke in. Well, when he's picked up, he's charged on the spot with guilt. But the difference is when God charges us, and as the Apostle Paul has proven, the case is closed. We are all under sin. And that's what Paul, Paul is trying to show us, that the Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. There's no one left out. And to prove his point, he moves on and gives us a huge chunk of quotations from the Old Testament. And he starts there in verse 10. So we're all under sin. We, we've got to get this. We are all guilty before God. And Paul, I believe, has made that point up to this point, And now he's going to solidify it in what he says here. Verse 10, as it is written. So he's not just making up words. He's pulling from the oracles of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. When he says not even one, that is emphatic again. He's saying, just in case you think you're the one, you're not. You're not the one who is righteous. Not even one. And how do we remember this? You remember when the rich young ruler came to Christ? What did he say? Good master, what must I do to be saved? What was Jesus' first reply? Did he answer the question? No, what did he say? There is none good but God. So he's got to get that out of the way first. Because he knows what this rich young ruler thinks. This rich young ruler is coming to Christ thinking that he's okay. Why? Because when Jesus says, do all these things, he says, oh, I've done all of those things since my youth. Remember that? And then when he gets to the end, Jesus says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. Because in his heart, his wealth and power and his influence were more important than his relationship with God. So God exposed, Jesus exposed his sin. And so there is not a single person today in this room who is righteous on your own account. No one. And this... I feel like Paul is addressing the entire body. So my first point is, our unrighteousness affects us entirely. Our unrighteousness affects us entirely. So first, I, re I feel like verse 10 is really getting to our hearts. Unrighteousness is a matter of the heart, not what we do, not that our actions should flow, but he's not getting there. He's starting... At the core, our righteousness should be internal first because it will flow out. So he's dealing with the heart first there. Then in verse 11, it says, There is none who understands God. None who understands. Or another word for that is comprehends. Or even, even more, it's not even possible for us to understand 
in our natural state. If you think of 1 Corinthians where Paul says that we must be in the Spirit to understand the things of the Spirit. In the same way, we are not able to understand or comprehend who God is and what He's doing unless He changes us. So we can't even begin to understand, to think rightly about God because we're unrighteous. So what is that dealing with? Our minds. So our hearts and our minds. So we are wicked from the heart. We're unrighteous from the heart. Our minds are corrupted. It's just like a computer. You know, many of you have Microsoft. I'm sorry for you. Oh, (laughs) I'm showing my cards. Apple also has viruses, just so you know. But when a computer gets a virus, what does it just affect the area where the virus is? No. You're, trying, you're over here just trying to use the calculator on your computer, and it doesn't even want to work. And that's like the simplest job that a computer has. So when you get a virus from this website, because they attach some cookie, which if you know that language, they attach a cookie to your computer to uh, infiltrate. It starts in one place, but guess what? It doesn't stop till it has the entire. In the same way for us, when it starts in the heart, but it's going to spread. Just as it says, um, how's the verse go? I, I forgot my, um, you know, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It doesn't, you can put a little leaven in the middle of that lump, but guess what? It's going to spread to the entire loaf eventually. And this quote here that Paul is giving us is from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. It's interesting that that the psalmist had an exact word-for-word Psalm 114 and Psalm 53. So I want us to look at both of those examples to see what uh, the psalmist is getting at. I would say the psalmist knows what it's like to be wicked from the heart. Wouldn't you? Especially if we read Psalm 51, because he said, in iniquity I was conceived. So he's saying from the very beginning I was a sinner. So he, he would uh, strongly agree with the fact that we are sinners from birth. So Psalm 14 says, I'll read a a little bit before the passage, but it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Don't you see that? What does it say here? God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. And what does he say? There is no one. So that includes everyone. Paul, it's interesting when Paul is talking about, in verse 9, he's using us, we, He's including himself because he knows how wicked he was. He knows that he was exactly what he is 
is writing about in Romans chapter 3. Let us turn to Psalm 53. So this is... David hasn't forgotten. (laughs) He's quoting the same words. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So Paul is not making this up from his own... He is reading the Old Testament Scripture and he's realizing, this is who I was. He thought he was okay. I mean, he was going out persecuting Christians because they weren't following the law. I mean, if there was anyone who believed that the law saved, Paul did. But when we get to the end of this chapter, we'll realize that something has changed in Paul. And it should be in us as well. Because so many people you talk to think, well, I'm a good person. I'll I'll be okay. You know, I've done a few good things in my life. But they don't realize that our sin separates us from God. We are sinning against an infinite God, not a God who is like man. So our, our sin is against Him. So no one, back to Romans chapter 3. You'll probably want to keep your finger there because we'll be going back and forth. So after our understanding, he again gets to our will. Our will in verse, at the end of verse 11. There is none who seeks for God. None who seeks for God. They're not even going out looking for God. And even if they did, they would not know how to find Him. They don't even want to go seek Him. So it would be like, you sending your child to go get the spanking stick. I know some of you probably don't like those anymore. No. <laughs> and you say, hey, I want you to go get this, the stick. Do they want to find the stick? It's likely they hid the stick, actually. <laughs> and it's the same way. We don't want to find God. Why? Because we know we're guilty. We know we deserve His just condemnation, and that's the thing. We don't want to understand God. We don't want to seek God because we know that if we are confronted by God, we will be held guilty as charged. So our will does not want to be confronted by sin, just as our kids don't want to be confronted with their sin and the justice that they deserve. Does that mean we can't show mercy at times? Yes. (laughs) There's many times when I should likely discipline, but I I realize that if I don't show mercy, then my kids won't understand mercy and grace. It made me think of Mark chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. 
There's a lot of verses today, and I, I just want us to see that it's not just Paul saying these things. Some people, they want to they pin Paul in a corner and ignore that Jesus said many of the same things. Jesus and Paul are preaching the same gospel. There is, there is no doubt about it. And I want us to see in Mark 3, verse 21. Well, I thought it was Mark 3. Mark 7. I can't read my own handwriting. Don't listen to my, lap, my wife chuckle over there. <laughs> so the, the, the Jews have come, the Pharisees specifically have come and said, well, Jesus, you and your disciples don't clean your hands after, when you go to eat bread. And they're not talking about, like us, cleaning our hands so that we don't get dirt and stuff on our food. They're talking about like a, a traditional cleansing, a ceremonial cleansing before you eat. And Jesus is telling, he replies, you all, how can you talk? You've taken your tradition and nullified God's law. You, you have made your tradition so important that it's nullified God's law. And then later he, he shows them, he says here, um, I lost my spot here. In verse 14, he says, after he, after he called the crowd to him and began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And the disciples are like, We don't understand this. What's, what are you saying, Jesus? Later on, he says to them, are you still lacking in understanding? Verse 18, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus, he is saying the same thing that Paul has said, right? Paul is not out in left field making up his own gospel. He's sharing what God has shown him. And we should see that. So we, don't, we are not righteous in our heart. We do not want to do righteousness. We are not wanting to understand in our minds. And we are unwilling to seek after God. We don't seek after God. Uh, one of my favorite books by A.W. Tozer is The Pursuit of God. If you want to understand how it is impossible that we have sought after God, read that book. It's a really good, I mean... A great book. It's a short book, too, and to the point. Uh, anyways, side note. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. 
There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So this entire quotation from 10 to 12 is all from Psalm 114 and Psalm 53. And this, this idea that they have turned away from God, it's, it's, they have seen the way of God, but they've decided, no, I don't want to go God's way. I really like Pilgrim's Progress for this. There's a, a section in the story where he gets to a point and it's either uphill through these crags and rocks or there's two routes on either side of the hill. And it looks like, well, they, those must just go around the hill so when we get to the other side, but guess what? He remembered, oh yeah, the book told me not to go, go straight, don't go to the left or right. And so he goes up and what happens? The two, his two companions decide to go the other directions and their end is destruction. We cannot avoid trouble. We can't think we're avoiding trouble and go another way and, and think, well, we'll get back on the path later on once we get through this trouble. That's what often happens, people, especially with people who grow up in the church. We are taught the right way. But as we get older, we're like, well, I'm not sure that that's still the case. I'm not sure that God is really that way. Maybe, man, I, I keep getting persecuted because I say these things. I think while I'm in college, I'm just going to try to skirt the edges. You just go around the hill, and then, then when I get out of college, I can come back to Christ. That's not right. That's not how God has called us to be. We are to be faithful no matter what the cost. And so we should not be turning aside. Because if we do, we become useless or worthless without value. Our worth is in Christ and Him alone. If you don't believe that, and you think that this world is right, because, I mean, unfortunately there's a Christian artist who sings about how you're worthy in who you are. But we're not. We're worthy in Christ. Our worth comes from Christ. Period. We cannot find our worth in man or their opinion. It's in Christ alone. He says, there are none who does good, not even one. This word good can also be translated kindness. So there's not even, even when we do things that we, if, if we're unbelievers, even when we do things that we think are good or kind, they are selfish. We're doing it because we want people to like us. We want to be recognized. Well, you're the, you're, uh, uh, the citizen of whatever neighborhood you're oh yeah we we know Caleb he's he's the the best person in Taylorsville or whatever whatever our motives are selfish it is not for god because what's the the reason we do things is not for god because we're unrighteous and just in case we thought it was bad enough that our Hearts and our minds and our will, all the inner, Paul moves to the outer. He moves to our mouth next. And that's what we see in starting in verse 13. But 
It's interesting, he speaks to parts of our mouth individually. He starts with our throat, which has a double function, right? It, we eat, and we breathe, and we speak from our throat. And it says, their throat, in verse 13, is an open grave. Now, that's, that's pretty vivid imagery, right? But Paul isn't just making this up. Let's turn real quick, Psalm 5. and Keep your finger there. That's the amazing thing about Hebrew poetry. It's so it's painting a picture for us. And that's what Paul I think that's why Paul loves to quote Psalms because well the Hebrew Hebrew anyways is a very poetic language, but in the sense that as a language it is very vivid, very God often uses words to paint a picture. For example, there's an expression for when you are angry in Hebrew, they actually say, my nose got hot. That's a pretty vivid picture, right? <laughs> but if you translated that to English, you'd be like, what are you talking about? But don't we all get red in the face when we're angry? That's the picture. So oftentimes in, in Hebrew, it's the same way. So Psalm 5, it says in verse 9, well, we could read a little bit more. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. That's not very popular. That expression, what I just read, you hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me... By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. Does the psalmist say here, because of his own works? What is he, what's the abundant loving kindness, your abundant mercy, your grace? That is how I enter your house. That was the difference between David and Saul. Saul thought he could get in by works. You know, if I sacrifice enough animals, then I can make up for the fact that I didn't kill King Agag. Right? But David understood. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your, your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. There inward part is destruction itself their throat is an open grave they flatter with their tongue hold them guilty O god by their own devices let them fall so the enemies of david are us we're us oftentimes we want to think well i'm like david <laughs> right we all want to be david but honestly, we're more like Goliath than we are like David. Or we're more like David's brothers than we are like David. We're more like Saul than we are like David. That doesn't mean that there's no hope. We're going to get to hope. But we have to see our wickedness. 
If we do not understand who we are without God, then when we get in Christ, we forget. And we're not as thankful. This message today should bring us hearts of praise. I know at this point it's like, well, how are we going to get praise out of this? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. But our throat, their throat is an open grave. I'm just thinking, can you imagine the stench of an open grave? Especially in the time of David. They didn't have all the chemicals and stuff to preserve the body. Just, it, makes me, it gives me the picture of, of Lazarus coming out of the grave. They, they said, by now he stinketh. So you can imagine, I've, in Guatemala I've been by, uh, there's a big cemetery in the city, and in that city, in that cemetery, there are people who rob graves, grave robbers. So if you're not careful, you can be walking through the cemetery, and these are all stacked, um, stacked graves. And typically a family will buy like a section and just fill it as... So anyways, sometimes you'll be walking along and there'll be, the thing will be off and you'll see bones in the grave. That's what he's describing. Thankfully, these were long, long dead, because it would stink. And honestly where it's right backed up to the dump, so you wouldn't know the difference anyways. But <laughs> uh, anyways, the, but the thing is, is the stench that you, when they open their mouth, you're, honest, you're honestly thinking, oh, it's not the smell. You know they're lying to you. You know they're about to deceive you. Their, their desire is to destroy and this is us. Without Christ, we are all capable of the worst sin we can imagine. And I, I can name someone like Hitler or Stalin or any other guy that we would know. And without God's grace and mercy in our lives, we would be capable of the very same thing. You're like, oh, there's no way. Yes, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead, as Ephesians 2 says. So after he talks about the throat being an open grave, ready to swallow you up, he then moves to their tongues. So he's talking about our mouth, then our tongue. What is it, the problem? They keep deceiving Their tongues are just, blah, it's, when they open their mouth to talk, it's always a lie. <laughs> There's no truth in them. Our Father, before Christ came and saved us, was the Father of lies, Satan. By nature, we lie. <laughs> then he moves to the lips. So just in case the throat didn't get you, <laughs> the tongues didn't get you, well, the lips... The poison of asps is under their lips. Their venom. I like the word venom there. The venom of their... their ven venom is their words. Everything that they say is meant to deceive you and destroy you. I know this. You're thinking, well, I'm not that way. Yes, 
This is what Paul is getting at. He's pointing to the depth of our depravity without Christ. And this is in comparison. Let us look in Psalm 140. Like I said, I've got a lot of verses. So the second half is actually from Psalm 140, verse 1 through 3. Well, not fully, but... Rescue me, O God, O Lord, from the evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts and continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips, Selah. This is describing us. This is why when we read the Old Testament stories and we think, well, if I had lived in that day, I would have been standing with Elijah. I would have been standing with Isaiah. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have. We would have been just like the Pharisees in Jesus' time. But God in His grace has opened our eyes and that's what we're going to see by the end of the sermon today. What really should have been happening is what we read of in Song of Solomon. Turn there. Many people, and I don't agree with this, many people read Song of Solomon and they think, oh, this is a song I'm supposed to read to my lover, my wife, or my husband. This is a song to God. And though I don't like some of the lover language that is used in a lot of contemporary so-called Christian songs, I think it is right for us to delight in God. And this is one of those cases, Psalm, uh, Song of Solomon 4. In verse 11. Your lips, my bride, drip honey... Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. That should be what God, that's what God, when He rebirths us, He's saying this to us. Because He has made our lips like honey and milk. We are totally transformed. This is the contrast of what we are and what we are made to be. Or we can read Hebrews chapter 13. Now whether this was written by Paul or not, it doesn't matter because it's inspired by God. Hebrews 13 verse 15. And this really goes with what we're about to read in verse 14 of Romans 3. I'll read 14 to lead up. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. 
That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to Him, to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So that's the opposite. Our lips should be praising God, not seeking to deceive and destroy. Because verse 14 of Romans chapter 3 clearly shows us. He gives a full picture of the mouth now. He's, he's talked about the throat, the tongue, the lips. Now he's going specifically and kind of really tying all that together. He says, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I think of the word cursing. I mean, look at the world we live in. The, the TV shows, even the, the syndicated TV shows on ABC or whatever, the, whatever you can get on your rabbit ears, there's cursing in it. And then, I mean, you, you watch an R-rated movie and you might as well like delete half the movie, if not more, because it's all curse words. If not, the Lord's name in vain. And it, I mean, Meg and I even have a hard time. Like, we've found that if it's higher than PG, there's at least two or three curse words in the movie. I know that. Just think about it. If next time you watch a movie, count. <laughs> if you get past one, you should probably shut it off. <laughs> That's what our, our rule is. Well, maybe, maybe the movie will be okay. But um, once they're Typically, if there's a curse word in the first part of the movie, you're up for a... It's like, I want to watch this movie. It's, it's supposed to be a good story. But there's so much language and, and cursing in it. And the thing is, what is coming out of our mouth is a sign of what is going on in the heart. And that's why I think Paul starts in verse 10 talking about our hearts, our minds, and our wills because we will do what is there. Our words are exposing what's in the heart. And that's what uh, Jesus was getting at there when we talked about Mark chapter 3 or 7. You can read the same story in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 15. Both, all those accounts are, are a great reminder that what we speak and what we say is a reflection of what's going on inside. So we curse. We, we are seeking to put a curse on others. And I wish, da-da-da. Or, I mean, a common curse word, the D word. That, you don't use the other word for where beavers live. <laughs> you know? We don't use that word for the good of someone. Right? It's meant to condemn. It's shortened from the word condemnation. We are seeking to condemn, condemn someone. That is a curse that we're trying to set upon someone. Or bitterness, the second half of what our mouth is doing. What comes out of bitterness? Gossip? Slander? We're seeking to destroy someone by ruining who they are by our words. I think this is more common in the church than we want to say. We might, we might have, well, I don't, I don't use the F word or four-letter curse words or whatever, but 
oftentimes bitterness is an issue we all deal with. And it, it comes out in our words. How do we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we respond to criticism of us? Good criticism, not loving criticism. Do we begin to talk about that person who in kindness approached us one-on-one because they didn't want to make us look bad in front of somebody else and then begin to talk about, well, I can't believe Joel would say that to me. Ugh. Or I felt that way about Isaac for a while and he was right. <laughs> he told me something I did not want to hear, but he was right. And in time, I realized and I had to go apologize to Isaac, not this Isaac, your brother Isaac, uh, and I realized he was a true friend. He wasn't afraid to tell me what I needed to hear. And in the end, God used it for my growth. And so out of our mouth comes what's in the heart, our cursing, our bitterness. It proves where we are, but it doesn't stop there. Just like that virus that infects a computer, it has to take action, and that's verse 15. If you move to verse 15, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. So now we're moving to the feet. So it starts in the heart. It it takes root in our minds. Then we're willing to do whatever we want to do. Then our mouths begin to speak it. And guess what? Before long, we're doing what we've talked about. We're putting action to what we're talking about. And this quote is coming from Proverbs chapter 1. If you'll turn there with me. And in this context, likely Solomon is, is telling us, he's talking to his son, he's warning him about the wicked. He says in verse 8, leading up to this, verse 16, he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And then verse 10, he says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. I feel like that's good enough context. So in verse 15 to 16, he says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. I mean, we look around us in the world today, we see people showing up at public events with, whether it's an assault weapon or a pistol or whatever weapon to kill many people, going to schools, going... This is just a sign of sin, sign of the depravity of man. And just look at the world wars that we've had. Remember World War I? It was the first time that people saw thousands, upwards of millions of people die. And they thought, well, we made, we made a pact. We've got this great peace plan. And guess what? How far did we have between world wars? Do you remember? Anyone? Anybody remember history? <laughs> huh? 20-ish. 
between 20 and 30 years, they're already that peace pact, it was totally destroyed. And World War II was far worse with millions of one people group, the Jews being murdered. And then you have the fighting and then even more millions. Man cannot make peace. And we're, we're about to get there, actually. But the whole point is, I mean, we look at our society today. Do you know what the most popular video games are? Huh? War games. Violent, realistic war games. And I, I will admit, I used to enjoy those, and God convicted me. He said, why are you enjoying violence? Why are you enjoying violence? Why do you enjoy taking fake lives? In the sense, but the thing is, what is that doing? If you're constantly, and even the, the movies, the, most, the, the biggest selling movies are not kids' movies. They're violent movies. I mean, this time of year, what are the most popular movies to watch? Horror films. I mean, our society just loves violence. It's, it's, and, and you look at most societies that have grown big. Rome, what was their... They loved war. They, they had the gladiatorial games. That's what we know. I mean, other than, than some, the, the structure, architecture of Rome, that's what we know about. The Colosseum was not a place where you wanted to go as a Christian because you were going to be dying. Now Christians are posing, taking selfies in front of the Colosseum like it was some great place to go to. <laughs> like, you know, this, this building was built to kill one another and then eventually was used to kill Christians. I'm not saying it wasn't a great architectural feat, but it's interesting how Christians look at history. Are we quick? And swift, are we running to shed blood? Were we? Yes. I know you say, well, I never killed anybody. Did you hate anyone? Did you hate your brother? Because that's what Jesus brings it down to. Where is our heart? What are we seeking to do if, if there were no restrictions? If we knew we would not be... Brought to justice, what would we be capable of doing? Because that's, that's why you see the wickedness of Hitler, the wickedness of Stalin. Why? Because he knew no one would do anything to him. There was no just. Everyone was afraid of them. So they could do whatever they wanted. And the people let it happen. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Or another word, ruin. It made me think about this guy. Have you heard of Orlando Metcalf Poe? Anyone? Come on, you don't read American history? Super famous. No? He was William Tecumseh Sherman's chief engineer. You know what his job was? To burn the city of Atlanta to the ground? And to build bridges so that as they went, they could burn everything they, they came through. So his fame and fortune came from destruction. 
You know how you knew where Sherman and Poe were? Follow the path of destruction. The path that they left was destruction. And that is the same way for many in the world. You want to find so-and-so? Look for the path of destruction. Look at the path they've left. The families, the children. Look at what has happened to them. We can look throughout history. Hitler. You want to know where Hitler is? (laughs) Where he was going? Look at the path of destruction that his tanks and his troops left. You know, Poe isn't famous. It's really, really, Sherman is famous. Everybody remembers Sherman's March to the Sea. But Poe was so good at destroying and building bridges that he, when he retired, he was given like the rank of colonel or something. And he was just a, a regular old engineer for him. It's interesting, he was... He was destroying everything in that, but when after the war, guess what his fa- he became famous for? Building lighthouses around the Great Lakes. And there's actually a lock that he built between Superior and Huron, I think, that made it possible to trade between those two, two lakes. That's interesting. Here, this man of destruction, you would have never known by looking at the outer of his later life that he was in charge of dismantling and burning to the ground the city of Atlanta and then dismantling and burning to the ground every city on its path to the ports of Georgia. You go to Georgia, people know who he is. They don't just remember Sherman, they remember him. And misery are in their paths. It's interesting. Destruction and ruin always lead to misery, even for the one causing it. When we go down that path of destruction, and we're leaving a wake of destruction behind us, we're leaving misery, and we're miserable. I would say everyone here, when you were in sin, and if you're still in sin, you knew or know misery. You were miserable. And the worst part is verse 17. And the path of peace they have not known. The idea here is even if they knew there was a path of peace, they wouldn't know how to recognize it. They wouldn't even know where to find it. They're clueless. Just like the parable or the story of Christian. He didn't know how to get onto the path until he was given the book. If you remember the the, uh, story of... uh, Why am I going blank? Pilgrim's Progress. Christian was going about his regular day life. 
in the city of destruction, prepared for destruction. And then one day, he discovers the book that tells how to find the path of peace. And that's the thing. We cannot find that path on our own. No matter how hard we try, our feet will not go there. Lastly, he deals with our eyes. Why? Because that's where we're illumined. Our spiritual eyes. That's how the Spirit speaks to us. He illumines our minds. And that's the thing. It's reverse order for new birth, right? God doesn't start with our feet and our mouths or our will and our minds. He starts with our heart. It's reverse order of what Paul is talking about here. In the same way, we must be transformed in the heart. And that is through our eyes, our spiritual eyes being open so that our hearts can receive what God has said. Because if we read the Bible and the Holy Spirit has not illumined it to us, it's just another literary book. has some pretty imagery, maybe some poetry, some good stories. Maybe some good moral stories about how you can change yourself in ten easy steps. You know, these five steps will transform your life from the story of the, the Good Shepherd. Or uh, we can learn from the story of Joseph how to avoid evil without realizing Joseph only <laughs> avoided evil because God was with him. Verse 18, the result, there is no fear of God before them or before their eyes. This comes from two, comes from Psalm 36. If you'll turn there with me. Psalm 36. Verse 1. It's so interesting. Paul is quoting verses that start with the heart. Let's see. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. I mean, you can read the Psalms and you're like, man, I feel like Paul must have just been constantly reading the Psalms. Because if you read the Psalms and you read the book of Romans, you're just inundated with the truth that Paul is teaching. Paul is going off of the Old Testament and saying, as we will see shortly, that this revelation is not new. This revelation started many, many years ago. And this is contrasted with Hebrews chapter 11. If you'll turn there. Again, I apologize for all the verses, but I think it helps us to see the contrast of where our eyes aren't 
were without Christ and where they should be in Christ. Psalm, or Hebrew 11, chapter 27. Verse 27, sorry. By faith, he left Egypt, Moses, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is, again, I'm talking about the eyes. We cannot see God. So we can't fear Him in our physical eyes. But when we see the invisible God as Moses did, we have complete fear in God. Fear that He will do what He says, whether good or bad. Because the fear of God, in the Old Testament, fear is related to both. God will do what He says, period. Whether that is for our good or for our destruction. But when we see God for who He is, how holy He is, we will fear Him. But the problem is, we cannot. And that is what Paul is getting at. Our hearts don't want Him. Our minds hate Him. We don't want to understand Him. We don't want to comprehend Him. We will not seek Him. We don't want to. Our mouths speak blasphemy. Our mouths curse and are bitter. And our feet are quick to shed blood. And our eyes, all that leads to our eyes. We, our eyes are a, a representation. Our heart is wicked. Unless God gives us spiritual eyes, we cannot see God, much less fear Him. So that was the first point. Our unrighteousness affects us entirely. And the second point the works of the law do not save. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So the purpose of the law is to speak. What is it, what's its purpose? What, what does it speak? It says, So that every mouth, what mouth? The wicked mouth that he's been talking about, so that every mouth may be closed. That's the first thing. It's shutting our mouths, our self-justification, our I'm okay, I'm a good person. It exposes us, right? If we read... The, the, if we've read these verses well here in Romans chapter 3, then we come away saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. Right? I am a wicked, wicked person. We realize that we are guilty. And then in, verse, in the, the following part of verse 19, it says, And all the world may become accountable to God. And I, I would prefer, accountable is a pretty good translation, but I feel like a better translation is we are all held accountable or held guilty by God. The law accuses us. It's a revelation of God's righteousness. It comes in and it shows us how wicked we are and how much we are in need of a Savior. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no one 
will be justified in His sight. So no matter what we do, if we think our works are going to save us, we are sorely mistaken and in sin. I think it's interesting he uses the word for flesh because what has he talked about up to this point? Our entire body is in sin. There's not a part of us that, that wants God, right? There's a lot of people who say, well, you know, he has a heart for God, but he just, he's mistaken right now. No, <laughs> no one wants God in any part of them. Unless the Holy Spirit moves on us, we will remain in our sin and we won't care what the law says. We won't care that we're guilty and God could charge us and condemn us and kill us in the moment. I mean, God could have done that with Adam and Eve. He told them, when you sin, you will die. What did God do? He showed mercy. He gave them nearly a thousand years of life. Isn't that incredible? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? Why Why is that not possible? Because God is holy. If we don't get that in our minds, if we don't realize that God is holy, an infinite holy God, and he cannot even stand the sight of sin. Remember the, one of the first verses we read, he abhors iniquity. That means he hates it to the nth degree. God cannot stand our sin. And so, even if we were somehow able to keep the majority of the law, we're still sinners. We still break God's law. And so there's no way in our, in our own abilities that we can stand just before God because when we break His law, we break the whole thing. I heard an analogy that I thought was really helpful. It's like we're trying to climb a chain to heaven. And that's the law. But the problem is, the moment we break one, we break that link, and what happens? We fall down with the, the chain. There's no way to achieve righteousness in our own ability. That's what all the religions of the world are trying to do. Whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam... Judaism, because they have rejected Christ, or Baha'i, or whatever, I mean, crazy Unitarian, you name it. Everyone is trying to get to heaven on their own terms. They think that, well, if we do these things, we'll be okay. It's not. Because God gave us His law for one purpose. For one reason, and we see that here at the end of verse 20. For through, or by, the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's how God exposes our sin. Its purpose is to give us that knowledge of sin. So that we can't be without guilt. And that's why the law is important when we share the gospel. Because if someone doesn't understand that they're a sinner, 
why in the world would they want Jesus? If, if, if I preach this message as hard as I am right now, I think, I think it's hard, I don't know. Um, but if, if we truly understood what these verses are saying, then we have to let people know, you think you're okay, but you're wicked. I mean, we have to say it in love, okay? I'm not saying, don't start out into them. Expose their sin. Use the law. Use God's word. Say, this is what God said is the, the way of knowing if you're going to make it. This is what the Old Testament teaches. And then give them the gospel. Don't give them the gospel first and then say, well, it's because you're a sinner. You need this, you know. It's just, I'm sure you've heard this analogy. It's, it's like a doctor saying, well, I have the cure for cancer. Well, great. I, I know somebody. Can you give it to them? But if the week before they got a diagnosis of stage four, they're dying tomorrow, guess what? They would be grasping hold of that. So give me that. And that's the thing. Our sin is a cancer. It will destroy us completely, entirely. That is the whole point of our, our message today, that our sin will, it may, it may take a while. It, we may look like a pretty good person. We, we may be drinking our sweet tea at 85 on the front porch, and people say, oh, look at that sweet old man and his wife. But we're just as wicked as the guy down the street with tats all over his face because he's been in a gang his whole life. You know, it, it doesn't make a difference. That's what Paul has gotten to the point. Just because you're, you're reformed and you're, you look morally good doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't make you right with God. But... This is a really important button in verse 21. But now, something is about to change. Something good is happening. But now, apart, separately from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This same righteousness that was manifested in, in chapter 1, verse 17. Remember that? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Same righteousness is revealed. It's manifested, made known. How? How is it manifested? Well, one, it says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what's he saying? That it's testified or, or been recorded by the law and the prophets. So, the righteousness that is of God, that we receive from God, is actually proclaimed in the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. And then he clarifies even more. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all. Is that where he stops? For all? For all those who believe. The law and the prophets spoke of this Jesus. That's why when Jesus met the, the, the men on the road to Emmaus, he started with the law and the prophets and taught them and where they showed concerning him. The Old Testament is speaking constantly of Christ and the righteousness of God that comes through faith. 
And when we get to chapter 4 of Romans, we're going to see it very, very clearly in the life of Abraham and David. That's why I love the book of Romans, because Paul is just building a foundation upon a foundation. And by the end, you're like, oh. And then he says, okay, this is how you live. Now you know all this. This doctrine is good, but you've got to put it to practice. And that's what happens in chapter 12. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the gospel. If we do not have faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what good we do. We must repent of our sins and turn to Christ for our salvation. If we don't believe the gospel then it doesn't matter what we think. Because why is this so important that to the all who believe? Because there's no distinction. That's what he said at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction. What? Between Jews and Greeks. Those who have God's Word and those who do not have. That's the difference. So whether you grew up in church or you lived in the world your whole life, it doesn't matter because when we believe, we are made one with Him. We are brought in to His kingdom. We are made sons, as Romans chapter 8 talks about. We are adopted into His family. And it doesn't matter if the person sitting right there tomorrow or next week, whenever we meet again, is tatted and whatever. If God has transformed them, does it matter? No, they're not. My guess is they would, if they've been born again, and I know, I know a guy who was special forces and, and I mean, tatted all over, and he is not proud of his tattoos because they all proclaim who he was. But for him, I guarantee you every time he looks in the mirror, he re, he's reminded of what God saved him from. He probably doesn't have to build monuments to remind him because, unfortunately, his body testifies to what God has delivered him from. But that's another reason for us, when we see someone come to Christ, to encourage them, to, as, as uh, Joel was talking about a couple weeks ago, that we encourage them and draw them along, disciple them, share the gospel with them, and encourage them to walk with God. Because there is no distinction whether you grew up in church or not. There are advantages to growing up in church because there's a lot of knowledge that you have that doesn't make sense until you're a believer. Right? When you become a Christian, you're like, oh, that's why they said that. That's why this is true. And so you have a, a large data bank that is useful. It had to be cleansed. You know, you can de you can take a virus out of a computer and you have to re, um, what's the word for it? Reconstruct the hard drive. You have to clean it up and then, and then you can put all the files back on, but you have to go through and clean those, those, those files. For those of you that are computer savvy, he's, he would be much better at that Luke back there. <laughs> he could tell us everything that we need to know. So if I'm saying anything wrong, uh, just ask him later. But, um, but when it's corrupted, it's possible to restore a computer. This takes a lot of work. But the thing is, we don't do it. 
God does it through Christ in faith. And that faith only comes through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He has to open our eyes. There's no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who has not sinned in this world. Christ was the only one. He lived from birth to death in complete obedience to the Father. And when His body was resurrected from the grave, it proved that He had done everything according to the Father's will. And His victory over death there on the cross. When it says fall short, this is an archery phrase, which I remember Mr. Hamilton actually mentioning this many, many years ago. But it's missing the mark. So when you shoot the arrow, you're trying to hit the bullseye. But that's the thing. We have all missed no matter if we're over in left field or if we're, you know, close to the bullseye, we're still missing. If we do not hit the mark, we're lost, hopeless. And there's only one way to hit the mark. Christ is the only arrow that went straight to the mark. That's the only way we win. That's the only way that we can come into the presence of God because we're falling short of the glory of God. God's glory is infinite. Do we think that we can come to His glory, to, to reach unto His glory? No. That's something He must give to us. And it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. And that, that third point was right there in 22 and 23, that faith in the finished work of Christ alone saves. Faith in the finished work of Christ alone saves. So application. We know this. We, we realize how wicked we were. If, or you are if you haven't been born again. And so what do we do? Repent. If you're, if you're not born again, you need to repent of your sins and cry out to God for mercy. We need to be Reborn. John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Christ, he said, what did Jesus say? What must I do to be saved? You must be born again. He's like, what are you talking about? Am I supposed to go back into my mom's womb and be born again? That doesn't make sense. But what he's saying is what we find in Ezekiel chapter 36. So I want us to turn there and, and we will close. Ezekiel chapter 36. God is talking about His people Israel who have profaned His name among the nations. They have been living in sin. The Jews that Paul has talked about in, the, in chapter 2 and even in, in the beginning of chapter 3, he, they have profaned the name of God by living in sin and doing what they want. And in verse 25, God says, that he will, in verse 24, he actually says, I will bring you back and I will do this. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That filth that's on our hearts and minds and wills and mouths and feet and eyes, 
He cleanses it completely. He delivers us from our wickedness. Verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Isn't that amazing? Our wicked, godless, unrighteous heart is taken and God gives us a new heart. And He puts His Spirit within us and He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that can receive from God, that understands God and seeks after God and speaks His praises and walks in the path of peace and sees and has fear of God. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. For what purpose? And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So before, we couldn't even walk in the path of peace because we didn't even know where it was. But when Christ puts His Spirit within us, He transforms us. He, he makes it possible for us to walk not only in a decent path, but in the path of peace, in the path of righteousness. And, and, it, and it's all in Him. He causes us to do that. And we want and we are willing to carefully observe His ordinances. It's not because... We're forced to anymore. It's because we want to serve the Lord, because we delight in Him. He is our greatest joy. And I pray that that is what you are thinking about today, that if He is not your greatest joy, ask the Lord, am I, have I been reborn? Have, have I seen the new birth in my life? And if you have been, it's a time to rejoice. Rejoice. 